now we want to go for a few minutes to the precious Word of God. We're going to the great book of Luke today. We're going to the fifth chapter of the book of Luke today. We begin a series in the parables last week. You know, Jesus is the great master teacher. Jesus, when, they, when the soldiers came back for tried to arrest him, they said, why didn't you bring Jesus? He said, they said, no man spoke like that man. And so today we're going to look at another parable of Jesus. I want to read in Luke chapter 5. I want to begin in verse 27. Here's how the scripture reads. It says, after that he went out and he noticed a tax collector named Levi, Matthew. He was sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, now listen, the greatest words that Matthew ever heard were these words. Jesus said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and he got, he got up and began to follow him. That's the greatest decision that Levi, Matthew, ever made. Certainly he was a rich man. Most tax collectors, maybe all of them, were wealthy in that day. But yet he saw something of greater value. He saw something that his heart was longing for. He left all of this world, all of its riches, and made the greatest decision he's ever made. He left everything, and he began to follow. I can tell you this, if Levi, Matthew, had not made that decision, we would not be speaking about him today. But we're speaking about him and the writings that he gave about Jesus because he made a commitment to Jesus. And it says, And Levi gave a big reception for Jesus in his house. There was a great crowd, and, and tax collectors and other people were reclining at the table with them. Now notice the Pharisees and the scribes began grumbling. There are always those people grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus is going to answer that. And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but it's those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink. And they were kind of saying, Your disciples are not really as spiritual as we are. And then Jesus said this in verse 34, you cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with him, can you? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. In other words, Jesus is going to die on the cross, resurrect, go back to heaven, and during the church age, we are to be fasting in these days. And then, verse 36, he gives another parable. And he was telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and, and the piece of the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine in old wineskin. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put in, new, in fresh wineskins. And he says, And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new. The old wishes for the new. For he says, the old is good enough. Father, bless the reading of your word today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. The message today is this, 
the parable of the cloth and the wineskin. And today in the message, today in the teaching, we are going to learn three things about Jesus. We're going to get three pictures of our Savior. Now get the story here. Please get the picture here. Levi, Matthew, a notorious tax collector has been converted. Can you imagine that kind of stir? Tax collectors were in many ways hated by their own Jewish people because they were they were collecting taxes for the Roman government. They were seen as traitors and pawns of the Roman government. And, and maybe some of those Jewish people, they, they really thought that some of the tax collectors were beyond redemption and they were going to be excluded from the kingdom of God. But that's not what Jesus felt like. Jesus saw and heard Matthew's heart and saw in him something that could be redeemed and something that he could use. And he said to him, follow me. And he began to follow him. And Levi, Matthew, was so excited about his new life. He threw a big party and he celebrated his new life in Jesus Christ. He invited all of his sinner friends. And by the way, that's what we need to do. We need to invite lost people to the table with Jesus. We need to invite lost people to let them know that Jesus loves them and he can save them. We don't need to partake of the grace of God and then not invite others that haven't partaken to the table. We need to know that, let them know that Jesus is the bread of life and they can come to the table. And so here's Matthew, Levi, and he invites his publican friends. He invites his former co-workers. He invites sinners and lost people. And they're there with Jesus. And Jesus went there with them reaching out to them and the Pharisees asked the question why do you eat with publicans and sinners in other words if you claim to be a teacher from God why are you eating with those who don't obey the law of God was their thought and then John's disciples come and they also ask him a question why do the Pharisees fast why do we fast but you and your disciples do not fast and Jesus is going to give three pictures of who he is. I'm going to tell you what we need today. We need to realize who Jesus is again. We need to get a picture of Jesus again. We need to get a fresh revelation of the old revelation of what the Bible really says Jesus is and who he is and what his mission is. There's a lot of people that are familiar with Jesus, but familiarity, as, as often has been said, leads to contempt. I want you to know today, Jesus is going to show us in these three parables, he's going to answer the question of John's disciples. He's going to answer the questions of the Pharisees about who he is. And we're going to get three illustrations from this teaching of Jesus about why he came. The first one is this. Who is Jesus, Pastor? I want you to know that Jesus is a physician for the soul. He is a physician for the soul. The Bible says here that he ate with sinners, and this offended the, the Pharisees. This offended because we have to understand in, in Eastern culture, sharing a meal with someone is not like sharing a meal today. But in, in Eastern culture, to share a meal with someone meant more than just sitting down and eating a meal. But when you ate with someone, you were, you were in covenant with them. You were bonding together with them. You were becoming allies with them. And that's why Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. Because we just partook, partake of the Lord's Supper 
And, and what it is, that supper binds us together. That supper says that we are the family of God. That supper, when we eat the meal at the Lord's table as we've just done together, what that means is this. That means that we of all that know Jesus Christ have drank of one spirit and we've all been baptized into one body. And so here's Jesus eating with publicans and he's eating with sinners. And isn't it interesting, interesting that the Pharisees never drew lost people. They repelled lost people. They wanted nothing to do with lost people. But isn't it interesting that we read in the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Jesus drew sinners to him. It says in the book of Luke, Now it happened that while the crowds were pressing around him to listen to the word of God. And here's the reason why. The reason why is the Pharisees had no hope, no message of hope for those lost people. Matthew says that Jesus saw them as sheep harassed and, and, and the New American Standard says dispirited. That means they didn't have anything to look forward to. In other words, they didn't have any hope. And the Pharisees had no hope for them. But Jesus had the message of hope. We are in desperate need of a message of hope today. I was reminded of this yesterday. Yesterday I was in downtown Dallas and I was riding through and somebody had a wreck and I was in an almost an hour and a half, almost standstill traffic jam. We were creeping along there for almost, like an hour and 20 minutes. It just went on and on. And as we crept along there, I noticed a lady got out of the line and got in the shoulder. And I thought, well, that's curious because we're wanting to get out of there. And so I creeped up there and I rolled my window down and I said to the lady, are you all right? And she said these words, yes. She said, I'm all right. My car's getting a little hot and I thought I would just turn off the motor for a moment. I said, ma'am, I'm sorry. I don't have any water to put in your radiator. I don't have any antifreeze. And she said, well, that's all right. And then as I was about to roll my window up, I said to her, but I want you to know that Jesus loves you. And I'm going to tell you when I said that, something happened. I can't explain it. I could tell something gripped her. It was like a moment of hope had gripped her. Something touched her spirit. And she shared, and she rather smiled, and she said to me, that's what I needed today. That's what I needed. And I want you to know, that's what our world needs. Our world needs the great physician of the soul that can offer us hope today. The Bible says of Jesus that he came to seek and to save that which is lost when you look at the Bible, you realize that the humanity is sick. Our problem is not economic. Our problem is not social. But our problem is spiritual at its core. The economic, the social, all of the other issues in our world today all stem from a root. And this is the root of sin. And when the Bible talks about sin... It pictures sin in Psalm 51 as defilement. Sin has defiled the human heart. John 3, Jesus said, men love darkness. He said, sin is like darkness. Men are lost in darkness. Men are groping in darkness. Men are away from God in the darkness. In Psalm 107, sin is seen as bondage. And the psalmist talks about the people being in chains and in bondage. That's what sin does. Sin binds a person. There's pleasure in sin for a season, but I want you to know something. 
Oh, you know, it's only for a season. But sin brings chains about us. Sin also is pictured in death. Men are dead, Ephesians 2, 1. Dead. We were dead in trespasses and sin. That doesn't mean that we're physically dead, but we were spiritually dead in sins before we met the Lord. We were separated from Him. Remember the parable or the story of the prodigal? He said, my son was dead. He wasn't physically dead. He was just away from the Father. When we're without God in, in spiritual death, we're out of a relationship with God. But disease is frequently seen, especially in the Old Testament, about sin. It's an illustration of sin. Notice what Isaiah says in Isaiah 1.5. He said, where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? He's talking to God's people who turned into sin. He says, the whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is nothing sound in it, only bruises and welts and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, not softened with oil. What a horrible picture of people in sin. This is what God sees. We don't see it from the outside, but from God's vantage point, it looks like oozing wounds. It's like a disease in the human life. Jeremiah said it this way about the heart being sick. He said, the heart is more deceitful than all else, and it is desperately sick. Who can understand it? How did the human race become sick? How did we get sick as a human race? I can tell you, when Adam and Eve came from the fingertips of God, they weren't sick. They were in relationship with God. They were innocent. They lived in the glorious presence of God. They walked with God in the garden. But, you know, in this parable and in this analogy of Sickness relating to sin. We can think of this. Sickness can be traced to the invasion of germs. Just like this coronavirus. That's infecting people all over the world. It's a germ. It's a virus. Sin secretly entered the human race. And if you think about this, in many times when someone's sick, they begin to decline. Our culture's declining. Sometimes there's a sudden failure. Like in Noah's day when the whole society was judged. Perhaps the person collapses. Perhaps they experience pain. They certainly begin to affect others. You realize that sin in someone's life, we affect our families, our marriages, our children. And if the germ is not destroyed, it will destroy them. Paul said it this way, the wages of sin brings death. Death is deadly. The entire human race has been infected with sin. But there was only one who came to this earth 2,000 years ago, who was never infected with sin. His name was Jesus. The angel said, His name shall be called Jesus, and He shall save His people from their sins. Paul said it this way, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And isn't it interesting that someone can be sick and it can't be as obvious? Some people are very sick. I've been to so many hospitals, and you can tell I've seen our, some of our dear church members on ventilators and they were sick and, and hanging on to a thread of life. Other people are carrying infection and they don't even know it yet. The symptoms are not even there. And isn't it like that? Isn't it like that? In, in Matthew's day, those sinners that were around Matthew's table, publican sinners, it was evident that they were sick. It was evident that sin was in their life. 
They were violating the laws of God. They weren't serving God. They weren't even claiming to serve God. They, they were diseased by sin, and it was obvious. But there was another group there that also was infected by sin, but it wasn't as obvious. That was the Pharisees. The Pharisees said to Jesus, I'm not sick. We're not sick. But the problem was they were sick. They were sick because outwardly they pretended to be righteous, but true righteousness has to touch us inside or it's not righteous. What is it? Jesus is the great physician of the soul. What do we know about this? Here's what Jesus does. He diagnoses sin and he performs a perfect cure. There's not 50 ways to God. There's not 50 ways to get cured from this disease. There's only one great physician and there's only one answer to the issues of life. There's only one answer that can heal the sin sickness of our soul and it's the grace and the power of Jesus Christ as he forgives our sins. He gives us a new heart and he makes a radical change. See, he did not change Matthew on the outside. He changed him on the inside. He gave him a brand new heart and he can give you and I a brand new heart. Hallelujah to God. Think about it. He's the great physician. He makes the perfect diagnosis. Sin is the problem. He offers a perfect cure, grace. And he pays the bill himself, the cross. Hallelujah to God. I know there's probably been many doctors and people that have waited on people that they've never got paid for their work. But know this, no one has ever paid the price that Jesus did to bring healing to a sin-sick society and a sin-sick humanity. And that is, our great physician gave his life for our healing. And I'm so grateful for that. Salvation is a free gift purchased by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before I go to the next part of this story, I want to tell you this. There's two people that Jesus can't heal. There's two kinds of people that Jesus cannot heal. You say, well, pastor, is the blood of Jesus not powerful enough to heal everyone? Yes. But there's two people that Jesus can't heal. Number one, it's those who will not admit their problem. Those who will not admit their sin. It's that person that says, you know, I'm good enough on my own. Like the Pharisees, I'm good enough. I do good deeds. I'm not as bad as that other guy. So surely I'm going to make it to heaven. Jesus can't heal that person. Only the person who will admit their sin and turn from it. The other person that Jesus can't heal is that person who simply just won't trust him. They want to trust new age or some other kind of means or some good deeds or works. But Jesus can only trust that one who will put their faith completely and totally in him. So we're answering the question today. Who is Jesus? I want you to know. He's the great physician of the soul. He can take your sin away. He can take the pain away. He can take the guilt away because of what the great physician did and whom the Son sets free. It's free indeed. And you should say, hallelujah. What else do we know about Jesus? Jesus is not only a great physician of the soul, but he's also the bridegroom. You remember reading this. Now, he's going to answer these questions of John's disciples with the illustration of the bridegroom. John was in prison. He had fearlessly convicted 
and proclaimed Herod's sin, what he was doing wrong, and they put him in prison. And John still had many disciples who would not begin to follow Jesus. In fact, you get all the way to Acts, 8, uh, Acts 19, and there's still some that are John's disciples that haven't fully followed Jesus yet. So this, these disciples of John come to Jesus, and they begin to talk about fasting. Now let's just take a moment and give a little background about fasting. Under Jewish law, the Jews were required to only fast one day a year. And that one day was the great day of atonement. Leviticus 23 talks about this. And then the Pharisees come along and they thought fasting was great. So they decided to fast two days a week because they wanted to be more spiritual. Luke 18, 12 talks about that. Now, to be clear, Jesus never commanded us to fast. But he did instruct us about fasting. And he did instruct us on how we need to fast. How do we need to fast according to Scripture? Number one, we always fast unto God, and we do not fast unto men. We don't do it as a show. We do it privately before the Lord. Now, what happened is the rabbis came along, and they began to add other days that Jesus never sanctioned, uh, that Jesus never sanctioned, nor did the law of Moses sanction. And these rabbis are adding all these traditions and all these laws. So by the time Jesus came, here's what Jesus said. Men are heavy laden. Men labor and are heavy laden, he said. But I can give you rest. They were laboring under the rules that they had added and added and added. The truth is the Pharisees were a joyless bunch. And the reason they were joyless is because religion can never bring joy. Rules and regulation can never bring joy. All that does is bring misery. The only thing that brings freedom is grace. Rule keeping doesn't bring freedom but grace the grace of God frees us so when Jesus responds to the Pharisees and then he responds to the disciples of John he says this to the Pharisees he says I'm the great physician of the soul he says to the bridegroom he says to John's disciples I am like a bridegroom at a great feast and what was he trying to say he was trying to say this that salvation or a relationship with God through Jesus Christ is compared to getting married. Do you realize when we get saved, we get united to Jesus. We become married in covenant with Jesus. Paul spoke about this. Romans 7, 4. Therefore, my brethren, you, were, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Jesus. Notice, so that you might be joined to another. That means married to another. So what is marriage? Marriage is a loving relationship, just like salvation is a loving relationship. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But I want to be clear here. It takes more than love to have a marriage. Now, you need to understand that. It takes more than love to have a marriage. It takes more than good thoughts about, uh, about your future bride or bridegroom to have a marriage. It takes more than special feelings to have a marriage. Well, Pastor, what does it take to have a marriage? I have done, I don't know how many weddings I've done, but there's one key thing that it takes. And you say, what is it? It's this. In every wedding we perform as ministers, this has to happen. I will. Do you take this one? I will. Do you take this one? I will. Till death do us part. Yes, I will. The will has to do it, be involved. And do you realize today 
that being saved is more than having right doctrine in your mind about Jesus. It's more than having good feelings about Jesus. Salvation comes at that point in time when a person yields to the gospel, a person responds to the gospel, a person submits to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Think about it. The great confession Whosoever will call upon the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. If we believe in our heart that God is raised from the dead, if we confess Jesus as what? Lord. That's lordship. We come under his lead. We say, I will yield my will to your will. Marriage. Marriage begins with love. But it leads to joy. (laughs) How strange would it be if people went to a wedding and they treated it like a funeral. That would be the strangest wedding in the history of the world. And Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, the bridegroom is here, I'm here, and there's joy. People are being joined to me in salvation. People are calling upon me. I'm washing their sins away. I'm doing, it's, it's like a celebration, but you want to turn it into a funeral. Think about what happens when a person is joined to Jesus. There's, we have the joy of sins forgiven. We have the joy of answered prayer, the joy of fellowship, the joy of forgiveness of sins, the joy of service, the joy of bringing fruit for God forth. What does a bride think about as they're married in those first few years? They begin to think about children. They begin to think about bringing fruit forth. And what a joy it is and marriage is to be. And the Christian we ought to desire to bring fruit for, for God. When we, see, when we start to grow, we start serving God. We start winning souls. We start making a positive difference in the family of God. I want you to know there's joy in that. Who is Jesus? Jesus is a physician that heals the soul. Jesus is a bridegroom that brings into our soul like a marriage. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. Why is it that Christians treat Christianity like a funeral why is it that Christians are so sad and so miserable when Jesus said it's like the bridegroom joined to the bride it's like a a, a wedding celebration what a thing it is now we know now that our great bridegroom we're separate Jesus said in the scripture I read in our text he said listen there's going to be a time when there's fasting. He said, because the bridegroom. He said, I'm going away. And right now Jesus is in heaven. But we're longing for our bridegroom to come back. And in this time, we're waiting on him. We're serving him. We're, we're doing his work. We're fasting during this time. But I want you to know very soon, there's coming a time when Jesus is going to come back. And we're going to be gathered together to him. There's going to be a great marriage supper of the Lamb. And it's going to be joy forever and ever. And sorrow and suffering will flee away. What's Christianity about? Isaiah said it's like drawing the joy, drawing joy from the wells of salvation. When we draw out of these wells, they're not empty wells, but those are eternal wells. We draw out salvation. We draw out forgiveness. We draw out comfort. We draw out strength. We draw out the gifts of the Spirit. And all of that is joy. Oh, the joy. The joy. So who is Jesus? Jesus is the great physician of the soul who comes to take away and heal the disease of sin from from sick humanity. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the great bridegroom. His presence is joy. And there's celebration. 
the angels celebrate when a lost person comes to salvation. But I told you there was three things, three pictures of Jesus in these stories. A physician for the soul, a bridegroom, and a great joyous festival. But thirdly, we see this. Jesus is the transformer. He comes to transform, not to patch up. Now, we live in the days of synthetic pre-strunk garments. So this illustration may be a little far for us. It may be, it may be complicated or a little strange to us because, because in that day, there were no pre-strunk garments. In that day, there were no pre-strunk cloths. And, and think about this. If a woman sewed a patch on a garment that had already been washed... When she washed it again, it would be ruined because the new, the new would shrink and it would pull away and ruin the garment. And if you put, as the, as the story, the text I read, if you put new wine in old wineskins that had already stretched, then what would happen? The fermentation would start and it would burst it and it would ruin the wineskin and the wine would be lost. So what's the, what's the teaching here as we conclude this time? The teaching is this. Jesus is teaching us about the old, and he's teaching about the new. The old covenant and the new covenant. Do you realize there are many churches that refuse anything new? They refuse any new wave of the Holy Spirit, any new ideas. And because of this, they lack two things. They lack power and they lack joy. And they're dead. But there's also churches that accept everything new. And because they accept everything new, they reject the old. They don't see any value in it. And they become secular, and they become self-willed, and they become worldly. The truth is, in this story, the Pharisees resisted change. Here's Jesus releasing new life. Here's Jesus releasing salvation. Here's Jesus releasing grace into lives. And because the Pharisees didn't want anything new. They were blinded by their own religion. They began to criticize Jesus. And really, they became obstructionists. We never want to be obstructionists to what the Lord wants to do. And what had happened is the Pharisees, the religious leaders, had literally buried the Word of God in their tradition. They buried it down deep in their traditions. And these people that were hungry and thirsty and wanted hope, it was literally hidden from them. But notice, notice that Matthew and his friends found new life. They, and, and, and because they found new life, Jesus was teaching them, teaching Matthew how to relate the old covenant to the new life they had with him. John and his disciples were kind of caught in between. The interesting thing is, John and Jesus, though they were cousins, they were very, very different. John was the prophet of judgment. But Jesus was a messenger of hope and salvation. John lived in the desert. Jesus lived among the publicans and the sinners. Jesus wasn't a conformer. He really wasn't a reformer. But what Jesus is, is a transformer. See, Jesus did not reject the old covenant, but he transformed it into the new covenant. Hear that. That's so important for us New Testament believers. Jesus did not reject the old covenant, but he fulfilled it in the new covenant. Jesus is not against the old covenant. Paul said in his writings, all scriptures given by inspiration of God, the words of Jesus. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law 
or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, to fulfill. Now think about this in conclusion. I can destroy a seed in one or two ways. If I had a seed in my hand, I could take it and put it on this hard concrete and I could take a hammer and I could crush that seed and it would be crushed in a thousand pieces and destroyed. But I could, but I could destroy it in another way. I could take it and I could plant it in the ground and it could germinate. And as it germinated, it would come up and be completely, the seed's gone. The seed's destroyed, but all of a sudden, it's transformed into a beautiful tree of some type. Now think about that. Jesus did not come to patch up the old, worn-out Jewish religion. He came to fulfill it. He came to fulfill its meaning, its types, its shadows, in his life, in his teaching, in his death, in his resurrection. He He transformed the old by fulfilling it in the new. So think about it. How does the physician heal the body? He heals the body by allowing it to heal itself. See, today our bodies are not the same that they were yesterday. Do you realize that millions of new cells have been created and have been manufactured, and the new is coming out of the old? Think about this. A bride and a groom do not destroy their home when they're married. They fulfill the new out of the old. The old generation, in turn, gives birth to a new generation. There's, not, there's continuity, but there's not conformity. A, a, a new home is like the old home that they were raised in, but yet it's different. Every baby is like every other baby, but yet they're different. So think about this. How does transformation take place? This teaching shows us that transformation that Jesus wants to perform in each of our lives does not come from outward but it comes from the inward. It comes from being united by Him. It comes like the book of Hebrews is showing the Hebrews, listen, the new is better. The new is better than the old, and the the old is fulfilled in the new. And the moment a person trusts Jesus, it says, therefore, if there's anyone in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Think about this as I conclude today. Think about this this morning. There's something in each of us that resists change. Each of us have that. And what happens is, when we are not willing to allow the Lord to change us, churches, instead of being transforming fellowships, they become places where people judge any new thing the Holy Spirit wants to do. Now, I think we need to be careful of false fire. But I think we need to be more careful of no fire. We need fire. And what we need is God to infuse His new wine of Holy Spirit life in us everything, every day. And and go from glory to glory to glory to glory. I conclude with this. There is always something old and something new. Because the the old, the the new grows out of the old by by the transforming power of Jesus Christ. Do not throw away the old and do not be afraid of the new. Do not throw away the old, but do not be afraid of the new. I want to pray for us as a church body today. And I pray that God would blow a fresh wind of His Holy Spirit in our lives. And I pray today that we'll know that Jesus 
is the physician of the soul. He's the one that came to heal our brokenness. He's the one that came to heal our disease. He's a great bridegroom that can bring joy. Why don't you come to his festival of salvation? Why don't you join him? All sin does is bring misery, but, but Jesus is joy today. Why don't you hear his invitation of joy? And not only that, but Jesus did not come to patch up the old, but he came to transform us into new beings in Christ Jesus. And oh, what our future will be when we're transformed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. I pray that you see Jesus today in all of his glory. Father, today I thank you for your mercy, your grace, and your love. I thank you for our Trinity Life family today. I thank you for everyone that has latched hold of this vision here. Jesus, I pray that you would be the center of it all. I pray, oh God, in the precious and holy name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you would be our physician, that you be our great bridegroom that you are, that you be our great transformer. Let the transformation never stop, but let us go from glory to glory to glory. And I pray in the days ahead that as we proclaim the great physician of the soul to our city and surrounding area, that people would feel our new building, the broken, the hurting, the hopeless, and they would come to the light of the truth of your salvation. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today in our worship. We'll be back online. I'll be uh, with you again on Wednesday evening. But let me give you the blessing and the dismissal today from this worship moment. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, may the love of God, and may the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And I ask this in Jesus' name.